are listening to Primal Radio, the podcast dedicated to combat sports, martial arts, self-defense, and the warrior mindset. And here are your hosts from Hamilton, New Jersey, Jim McCann, and London, England, Tom McGrath. Primal Radio, we are back. <laughs> uh, it's just me again, Tom McGrath, with um, Jeremy Lynch once again, who's becoming a bit of a mainstay on the show. <laughs> Do I have any news? Not really. So during lockdown, my girlfriend spent a lot of time at my flat, so much so that she is now moving in. And she's (laughs) turned up today with like a carload of stuff. And I've got a small apartment. And it's just like, how the fuck am I going to fit all this stuff in? (laughs) So that's been like the main challenge of today. And I've also been re-watching The Sopranos for a third time, which is causing me great enjoyment. But other than that, oh, and I've just got back from Greece. So I did 11 days over there. It was half the price of normal, half as many people as normal. It was just fantastic. So if you can get away, get away. Jeremy, anything from you? Well, yeah, California's back in lockdown for the past couple of weeks. Uh, We're basically the same way we used to be, uh, except for a little bit more strict about the masks, I think. We try to keep things as normal, things as normal as possible. My son is constantly working out. He's loving boxing. We're training a little bit together as long as, as well as going in with class. So, you know, we're trying to make positives out of all this crap that we're we're dealing with. Most people I speak to, about half are really enjoying this. You know, they're spending more time with their family. They've got a job. They're working from home, things like that. And about half are hating it. I don't know which camp I'm in. Thankfully, I'm here with my family and I do work from home. But, you know, it is affecting the place I work, the university. You know, they're never sure if they're going to be able to open. And we still haven't been able to take students on campus. Kind of makes you a little stressed about where things are going. But being home with my family is great. My wife had to do ballet teaching over Zoom, which she did not like. I did a a JKD-focused exercise class called JKD Express that I actually didn't mind. I turned the living room into a little studio and... We're still broadcasting that, but it's like just the beginning now of my regular class. My family likes to get out. We're still getting out. It's just that, you know, people look at you sideways, you know. <laughs> yeah. I keep forgetting the mask. I like turn up somewhere like, yep. shit, I forgot the mask. I can't yep. go in. <laughs> yeah. I usually have one in my car, but I walk halfway to the door and I'm like, oh, <laughs> go back. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's fun. I'll introduce this week's guest. He's a friend of both of ours. I've been interviewing quite a lot of the senior Wednesday night group instructors. It's kind of a safe place for me rather than reaching out to everyone, you know, while Jim's not about going to my friends. And we kind of have these shows where it's talking to old friends. It's like having catching up over a beer and it's been great to sort of touch base with everyone and kind of bring some, some of that energy back to kind of our group during lockdown. So this week's guest is, I mean, he really is a really fucking tough guy, massive beast of a man. He's a university professor, a senior Wednesday night group instructor, as I've said, practiced a whole bunch of stuff and, you know, it goes back to like being a kid, him, him training. He's based out in North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Brent Lance. Hey, I'm glad to be part of the show. Thanks, guys. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, Brent. Hey, Jeremy. <laughs> How you been, man? Excellent. How have you been? I've been great. You know, you know, I have to say real quick before I forget, my son and I have been watching a lot of, of George Foreman, old, old training videos, old fight videos. And I think that Brent is the closest thing I've seen, the closest person I've seen to like a George Foreman type 
persona because George Foreman obviously was was a well-trained fighter, but there was something natural that he already had. And there was that beast. They used to call him the closest thing to a monster that you would, <laughs> that you would see. <laughs> and it's funny because, because you actually have good training and you actually have good technique. But like you'd see George Foreman throw and look like he was a street fighter. And then those punches would land and people would just buckle. <laughs> it was kind of <laughs> sad. So anyways, this is what Brent Lance reminds me of, is the original George Foreman, before the grill. Before the George Foreman grill, right? Yes. <laughs> Tim Tackett always loves having these like really tough guys in the group. Yeah. And it's like, if your JKD is not amazing, if you're a really tough guy, he'll forgive that. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I think he prefers those guys. Brent, were you always that way? I mean, you, this goes back. You you started training these guys, I think, at twelve, like in an adult world. How did that come about? A friend of mine named Charles Loudermilk, who trained with Vic Payne, you know, in Brasstown, North Carolina, and Vic Payne put on that Great Smoky Mountain Martial Arts Camp in the summertime. You know, after I trained with Charles a little bit, uh, he said, "You ought to come up there." Of course, everybody was older than I was. It might have been a few other teenagers that came around. I really got serious about it. And when the camp rolled around, I just got to meet all these great people. That locked me in. I just wanted to spend as much time around those people as I could. And I was just, you know, basically I just pretended I was like a sponge and I just wanted to soak up every bit of knowledge they could pass out. I didn't understand all of it at the time, of course, but I tried to suck up as much as I could. Were those guys famous then? And, and like, were you like the, uh, one of the only young people? Like, you were su- probably significantly younger than everyone else. Yeah, there there may have been. Like I said, Vic had a few other students who were close to the same age uh, that just showed up at the camp. But I think that I was the the young one. I was definitely one of the youngest ones there from the start of it, and. I was one of the younger ones who took it seriously. And those guys were, to me, they were famous. I don't know that they really were, (laughs) I mean, actually famous for anything. But to me, they were famous. To me, they were a big deal. And uh, because of the edification that Vic Payne put on those guys, when, when he introduced somebody, he edified them in such a way that you had no choice. But the only thing you knew about them was how awesome they were. And then when they started doing things or teaching you things, you saw it come out. So, it, you know, it was just it was that that kind of thing that locked me in. And I, and I just became a good student, I think, after that. Tell us about Vic, because I didn't actually know Smoky Mountain was in North Carolina. And it feels like at that point in time or maybe maybe a bit before. But California seemed like the center of the world for JKD right. and a bunch of other martial arts. How did this come to North Carolina? Well, Vic Payne, he trained with these guys, you know. So, I mean, he would, Vic actually would go to California from time to time and he would follow them in seminars and they were people that he liked to train with. Uh, Vic being, I guess, kind of the promoter type of person that he is, he's like, hey, I want to have a camp right here in the mountains, you know. So he invited his friends and, you know, his instructors to come and teach there. And they, when they came, it just grew to a worldwide thing right there in the mountains of Western North Carolina. It just became huge. And what years are we? T- how long did it go on for? And like, what? Like, when were you going? Um, so the first year I went was, I think I was around maybe twelve years old. Nothing like eighty six, 
1986 maybe and i think the last one was in 90 or 91 so i was still a teenager throughout pretty much the whole thing i was fighting by the time they were coming to an end you know it was several years before i started and and i was there till it ended was it a whole bunch of things or was it jkd i mean i i, I know i know there was like silat yeah dan would teach carly tim uh, sorry uh, not tim larry would be teaching the jkd right or t- tim must have taught some right we would have sessions throughout the the day and and there were usually you know dan and asana would get the first session in the morning and then uh you would have him he would usually teach you know filipino martial arts in the morning and then you know i guess he got favorite spots he's the most senior guy you know so he got whatever spot he wanted to get and then you had Tackett and Hartzell. They would kind of seem like kind of split session a little bit. And, you know, Hartzell would teach them, you know, more of the in-close stuff. And, you know, Tackett would teach with him or, you know, they would kind of be like following each other. We also had Chai suit uh, doing the Muay Thai. We had, you know, different people doing different things. We had Graciela Casillas doing boxing a lot. And uh, we had Cliff Linderman who came and did like ninjutsu stuff. And we had... My favorite, probably, I'll be honest, was Burt Poe. Um, when uh, you know, he just oh, teach yeah. you how to uh, <laughs> teach you how to really hurt somebody, and he would always make an example out of some big dude in the room, you know, because <laughs> he would say <laughs> if he can make it work on this big dude, this big muscle bound guy that I would look at and think, oh my gosh, I'd hate to fight that guy. Then I see Bert just like grab him just a little bit and make him <laughs> manhandle all the Yeah. And it was so funny. Yeah. Um so uh that was probably my favorite. Um I always panicked a little bit if Bert grabbed me just a joke in yeah. the lunch line or something, you know. I was scared. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid I was gonna be hurting next. But Bert would share us and he would also share it like in the evening, like when you know, like these guys are teaching but not getting paid for it kind of thing. They're they're still sharing, and that's when I wanted to be around when they were when they were most candid and at their most honest and open. You know, and we had guys that came in for a few of the camps, like uh, Joe Lewis came for a couple camps, I think, and I really enjoyed watching him. I actually learned a lot from from his classes, and actually followed him a couple other places too, just because I liked some of the stuff he was doing for power and things like that. Let's see, we had. Paul Detroit, Victor Detroit teaching C lot. Santo kind of brought those guys in. Vic and stuff like to train with those guys doing the C lot. And we had uh, Cliff Stewart who would do handguns. So we, you know, I wasn't old enough to do that at the time, um, but oh, I got to watch. But uh, Cliff Stewart would be, I'd be out there shooting guns. You know, it's pretty cool. How many days was it? I mean, that's a lot of stuff. Oh yeah, it was all week long. It was a whole week. Right, so you were battered and bruised by the end. Oh, yeah, you were dead. So, like, yeah. Monday or Saturday and That's... Sunday, there'd be like a mini camp. They sp- Vic started promoting a little mini camp with a few of the instructors. And then the week coming up was a week long camp. And the only time you really had a break from training is when you went rafting or something. We took a little break and went rafting down the Nanahala <laughs> River, which is close by. But it was it was wall to wall training, man. Jeremy, did you go? No, I did not. Let me just say real quick, it's like, that's something that I really miss, though, about those times is that nowadays, if you talk about doing an event or a seminar, they're like, oh, if it's not Friday to Sunday, then you can't do it. Nobody will show up. 
there's a lot of trainings and a lot of events for all their, I mean, you know, Tony Robbins, one of those, he'll have like a Thursday through Tuesday or, you know, it's like, if this is something that's important to you, you sign up and you train and people, I tell people, Oh, here's when I'm available. Oh, it has to be a, a Friday to a Sunday all day. And otherwise people won't come. And, and I'm like, really? And these people ain't serious. It's like, well, they need to have their weekends. It's like, don't you take vacation? It's, it's like, if this is something that's important, don't you just plan yeah. for it? Uh, but yeah, no, actually, this was before my time. Yeah, Brent has known these guys longer than I have. I started in 1990, and I was in the East Coast, so it's sad. I probably would have shown you up. You were in Virginia, right? Yeah, yeah. And if I had known, I would have gone. I sent away for Tim Tackett's book, and then I went out to visit my mom, the, the textbook, JK, Jen Fenge, you can do the textbook. We went out and visited my mom in California. And then my dad said, Hey, it showed up here in Virginia. Do you want me to send it to you? You want me, are you going to wait till you get back? And then we've talked about this on the show before. I said, no, no, send it. And it had the address in the cover, Redlands, California, which has happened to be where I was staying. And so in 1990, <laughs> I just called them up all nervous, you know, because these guys were famous to me too, you know, and, and it was kind of like, yeah, yeah, just join it. So I'd moved here from Virginia just so I could be around this. And then I didn't meet Brent for years because we didn't start doing these types of camps again. Like you said, it ended in like 91, the last camp. And, and I didn't get to go to that one. I was still a youngin. One of the things that always struck me with the Wednesday night group has been that there's kind of an openness. There's none of that, like the instructors are at the top table. And you were mentioning how, I guess, even as a kid, Brent, they tell the stories. You could be by them. They would treat you like part of the group. I think my first year, maybe I felt like a little bit of an outsider, but like very quickly, I was kind of accepted into the group. That was mm -hmm. your experience as well, right? Absolutely. Um, I was very, um, I guess, apprehensive at first about approaching any of them, of course, because of just my, of the edification that Vic put on them. I was like, man, these guys are like, if they, if they, you know, jump up in the air and stay there for a few minutes, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, <laughs> because <laughs> this is, this is what, they, you know, they're like magical or something, yeah. but they actually treated me once, I guess like maybe they saw I was interested and they thought maybe, you know, who knows, this may be a kid that, you know, sticks with this. And they actually took the time to just joke around with me and let me be part of them telling stories and, there were like students weren't allowed to go into Vic's house where the instructors would go into his house. Now, during any other time when I was up at Vic's, we'd be in the house all the time. But during camp, you weren't allowed to go in the house because the instructors came in there for air conditioning breaks, you know, whatever. I actually, you know, ultimately end up getting to say, well, you know, you'll come in the house and I'll tell you about so and so. And, you know, and that was really cool. I just felt like pretty soon I felt like I was part of the group as far as being included of course i was nowhere near being talented enough to do it as far as what they would think was awesome or good in my opinion but you know i just enjoyed being part of it and it didn't take long for them because of the types of people they were for me to like get to like hang around them a little bit so it, i understand what you're talking about about feeling part of the group rather quickly maybe at first being a little bit apprehensive or not knowing where you fit in but then all of a sudden it's like hey they're just regular guys they just want to be nice to me you know you're very humble but like what, what do you think they saw in you not everyone's treated like this you know you, you, you and you have done very well you know you have grown to be a fantastic martial artist well right? thank you i guess I, I don't know everything that they tried to do at first i i mean i would just try to mimic them i guess i was I don't know. So maybe imitation is a great form of flattery, um, <laughs> but they could see past that, I think. And they thought, man, if this kid 
if he keeps doing that, I mean, he's going to be good. And um, I look at students the same way now. I see that happening, and I'm like, heck yeah. I've heard I, I see it. talked about you. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you right now. He said <laughs> when he was watching, you know, when you were a kid, he said he's watched your level of intensity, you know, that you were not everybody can walk into, you know, especially at that age and just be like, I'm going to do this, you know. There's the shyness factor. There's the, you know, not wanting to look bad. There's the, you know, making excuses so you don't, you know, look bad kind of thing. And he said that he saw right away that you were hungry for it, you know, and that's well, what that, stood out in his mind. Well, that that would be a good way to describe it. I'm, I mean, it's awesome. That's the first time I've heard anybody say that about, I mean, you know, they just, they taught in a way, though, that I guess fed me what I needed at the time. I guess that's what it was. I mean, as an instructor, I would try to, I try to emulate that and I try to see what somebody's, what do they really want right now and how can I give it to them? So if they're not, but of course, if they're not hungry and they don't really want to learn it, they're not going to do it anyway. But I really (laughs) did want it. (laughs) I really did want to learn. Aaron Groves, who's one of your um, uh, top students and and you can talk to him, but I'll just, I'll just tell you this little story that he, he sent me. So he said how he'd gone to a, MMA weigh-in event with a UFC fighter Spencer Fisher who like has like a 24 and 9 record and <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good. Spencer recognized him and he said to, to Aaron he said you're one of Brent's guys aren't you he said yeah and then Spencer said that's the toughest motherfucker I've ever sparred <laughs> with in my life I remember that he kicked me <laughs> once and I knew that I didn't want to get another one uh, Aaron told him, and this is it's a remarkable thing, which I, I, it, as soon as I read this, I was like, oh, yeah, I've heard this before. He said, I know Brent has kicked through three baseball bats with a single kick. That's pretty remarkable. And again, because I know you're going to be humble and everything, but this is like a UFC fighter with a good record telling Aaron, one of our guys, that you're the toughest guy <laughs> he's ever fought. And... <laughs> Kicking through baseball bats. I mean, how did you even get into kicking through baseball bats? And three of them, not just one. Okay, so that's a okay. That's a lot of stuff in one statement. Okay, um, well, uh, Spencer Fisher, he called me up at one point, and he was getting ready. He hadn't been in the UFC at this point. He was actually just starting his journey in that kind of mixed martial arts, uh, no holes barred kind of fighting. And he's like, I need somebody to spar with me. I'm like, well, you know, I'm not in very good shape for, you know, fighting or whatever. Uh, but I will, I'll come up and, you know, but I didn't know really what it was going to be. So the only grappling I'd ever really been successful at doing was like high school folk style wrestling. Okay. So that's really the only grappling I was, I, you know, that I was actually any good at. <laughs> I knew some stuff from Larry Hartzell's classes and stuff, but I couldn't apply it full speed. There's no way, you know, the First thing I guess that happened, they tried to explain the rules for me and told me what tapping out meant. I didn't really know what that was. I didn't know that you could do that. <laughs> and I thought it was a bad thing <laughs> if you tapped out. So when we start sparring, I guess maybe I threw a kick and maybe Spencer didn't like it. So he tackled me like a, a takedown, he, you know, took me down. And then the first thing I did from high school wrestling was go to my base, go to my belly. And he put me in a rear naked choke, you know. So that's how I learned about grappling, uh, how that was going to go. So, um, it was a great honor to, to even spar around with Spencer Fisher. But, uh, you know, I did say some things while he was trying to punch me and stuff that he, the reason he's probably saying those things, I may have commented at while he was punching, you got to get me better than that. Or, you know, you got to, you know, put some on it or, you know, um, <laughs> 
I wasn't going to give up. And he put me in an arm bar and I was like, it hurt. Yeah, but I wasn't going to tap out, you know, break it, you know, whatever. But it's kind of a <laughs> stupid thing now. I would never say that to him now uh, <laughs> because he would, he would probably, I would know to tap out a lot earlier. And then I guess the second part of your question about the baseball bats. Well, um, I saw Vic Payne kick through some baseball bats. I saw Chaisirisu kick a ball bat or two, I think. With um, the shin bone, right? Yeah, with the shin bone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't kick it with your shin, I mean, what is that, you know? I guess you can have yeah. tough feet. If you could break one with your feet, that'd be pretty awesome. Like with the top of your instep, yeah. you know. Um, but anyway. I would do it with my heel. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, yeah. So that's a lot safer. Yeah. A lot safer. <laughs> it shoots. Um, but so I kicked through two ball bats, and and it was nothing to me. It was like it broke right away. And of course, I had to do some. I had to do some shin conditioning first. I really did. I did some. Oh shin yeah. I mean, I don't recommend. I'm not going to say like some little kid like here. I can kick a baseball bat with my shin, and then he goes and breaks his leg. You have to do some training for that. So, I will, you know, put that little stipulation out there. But and then I said, well, I'm going to try three, and I kicked through three bats, and it also was not hard. I think if I, I think I could fold an aluminum bat if I wasn't afraid of it cutting my leg to pieces. You know. <laughs> I think if you know if you just know what you're doing and you're trained for it, it's it's a feat that most people would say I, I hurt my shin bumping on the coffee table, um, and I hop around for 20 minutes. Now the coffee table hops around for 20 minutes if I hit my shin on it. So <laughs> I just don't say, but you know, it's a very doable thing. It just you know, it almost everybody that I train kicks hard enough to do it. They just don't have the guts to kick it with their shin. You know, they all probably kick hard enough. It's it's not really necessarily a power thing. You just don't want to stop once you're kicking it. <laughs> I think a lot of people could do it. Yeah, they just have to get their shin ready. I've never got into that breaking stuff. Like you used to do Taekwondo, right, Jeremy? Is that, you know, when oh, they're yeah. breaking all the all the boards and all that kind of thing, is it like, you know, you see little kids doing it. I mean, yeah. to what extent is it sort of like technique and skill or is it like the boards are, aren't really that strong? Yeah. Well, the thing is, is that those boards, those are pine boards that got seams that are, that are pretty, and then they even have you know plastic breakaway boards. So you don't have to keep buying pine boards, right? You can just put them back together. They have about the same resistance. That's not to say when you're talking about kicking a baseball bat, you're going across the grain. So you know the grain goes up and down. You lean those up and you're kicking. I think a little bit near the the hand, the neck where the hand is held. Yeah, the, the smaller and, end. <laughs> but but you are. I wasn't comparing the two, by the way. No, no, <laughs> I, no. I, but I, it's I, like yeah, you're hitting that across and and then with your shin bone across the grain and it's yeah and then it's a rounded surface so you think about you're not hitting a flat board you're hitting it with your bone against a rounded surface yeah it's it's painful and but i have to say if you ever looked at at uh, brent's legs he was genetically designed to break baseball bats with his shin bones (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true (laughs) that was the whole purpose of this creation (laughs) we used to remark how you had one calf muscle and your calf muscles like gigantic but one of them is bigger than the other because you spent so long in one lead well i I really don't know if that's why this might be it might just be kind of freaky like that too monstrosity Uh, yeah um but my right calf is significantly larger than my left calf but they're both large calves actually when i was in you know young school in school you know and everybody knows that i was fighting in my you know all my classmates and they were like um i didn't have very big upper body at all so um, they would always say, well, you know, they would talk about their biceps or whatever being big, and they'd be like, well, your little rattlesnakes aren't as big as my 
boa constrictor python or arms, you know. And um, and then one of the other kids I remember he remarked, "Yeah, but your calves aren't as big as his bulls." So, <laughs> so they said that I, I outgrew the calf muscle and actually grew bulls instead of calves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there is a I think there's a direct link with when you when you once you learn how to punch, and where you get that springiness from, and how to you know help you snap punches and a drive through punch enough and snap and snap it at the right time. A lot of that is you know you can regulate that with your calf muscles that's what raises your heel and, and plants it you know at the right time so um i think it has contributed to my the snap and the heaviness of my punches being able to vary that so much yeah jim has a rule of thumb where he says like if if a guy is 20 percent bigger than you you've got to be 20 percent better than them and like going back to the school thing and like I have it with my mates, they go, you couldn't have that guy because he's fucking massive. And you're like, yeah, but it's, it's like, he's like, let, let's say this other guy is 20% bigger than you, which is qu- quite conceivable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more than possible that I can be 20% better than him with like, you know, 15 years or so of training. Sure. And I think that's, that's what people don't seem to, to get. I mean, you're big and strong and excellent, which is of course the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the magic combo well that's awesome thank you um going back to those smoky mountain ca- camps because it's something that we've not touched on in much detail on on the 100 podcast we've done so far i think you're going to be number 100 i'm going to be number 100 i think so we've i've still wow. got to edit sean king from last week so well i say last week it was like two weeks ago but then i went to greece but so you got to train with all of these legends could you sort of like walk us through your impressions of some of these people? Just playing into this, um, for some reason, a lot of people have been sharing images of the Smoky Mountain camps recently. You know, Tim shows shares some stuff because you know a, a sentimental sort of you know memories sure. of these great events. But lots of other people seem to be sharing things as well. Yeah. So one guy who has a lot of pictures of the Smoky Mountain camp instructors is a guy named Gerald Steely. He has like tons of pictures because I think he actually was maybe he was even in charge of photographing the camp. Uh, so he has like lots of pictures. It seems to me like, you know, he must have been in charge of taking pictures because he has like a zillion pictures. I'm not in many of them because, well, I wasn't the ones of the person of interest for the most part. I was in the background as much as anything else. Well, I was already blown away because, you know, I trained with Charles Laddermilk and he was good. And his teacher was Vic Payne, and Vic Payne was very good, very, very talented, very fast, very powerful. So I was already impressed. And then when when I hear like you know Charles and Vic put this all this credibility and edification on these other people, I was already knew I was going to be blown away. But then when I saw them doing stuff, I really was. I was I thought they were phenomenal. You know, if I start with uh, you know Dan and Asanto, I think one of the most fluid people I've ever seen, you know, doing what he does. And I've seen some, you know, a lot of people doing, you know, martial arts and he was very fluid. I mean, obviously Tim Tackett probably made the biggest impression on me. Part of it could have been the fact that he paid attention to me and he actually would show me extra stuff if I asked, and then he'd mess up my bowl haircut or something. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> you probably heard that story. That was a little bowl haircut kid, you know, that's just because yeah. nobody around, you know, I just cut my hair. Somebody said I need a haircut. So that's how it got cut, you know? Um, but anyway, Tim Tackett just made a great impression on me. Just, I could just, 
maybe because of his how easy he made things look. And the stuff that he showed me was stuff that I just I just bought into it right off the bat. And this was really a lot of it prior to when Bob Brimmer was in the garage all the time, you know. So, you know, going through that time. So, you know, um, of course, you know, I like Larry Hartzell's stuff. I like Chaucer suits. I liked everything. All of them were very human. They were down-to-earth people. But, you know, remarkably, the ones that stood out, obviously, would be the biggest one would be Tim Tackett. And I think that who I chose to look into when I became better and wanted to get better from from that point on, that's who I was glad to, you know, hook hook back up with. So when those camps finished, what replaced that? And also another question as well is... Obviously, you were trading an array of things at the camp. When you went away from camp, what were you working on? Were you training a whole bunch of martial arts or just focusing on the JKD? The focus was not JKD all the time in Vic's class. He kind of, he let the stuff from the camps kind of carry over a little bit. Of course, he was more advanced than what we learned at the camps. But I mean, we we had that little bit of knowledge from the camps that we could keep practicing. You know, I would say the regular version of Vic Payne's class was sparring. <laughs> That's what we did. We were fighters. So um, we wanted, at first I really didn't want to fight, but I, I just kind of got used to getting my nose busted. So uh, <laughs> after that, I was like, well, I doubt anybody's going to hit me as hard as Vic Payne has hit me. So <laughs> I might as well get some experience out of this. But mostly the class was geared toward developing someone you know if they had to take care of themselves they could do it so it was you know let's look at this stuff you can use that works for you a lot of jkd principles were in there vic Payne was always screaming attack the attack quit being passive you know intercept him intercept him stuff like that so it was it was ingrained in there but it was it wasn't like it wasn't structured jkd because we would go from we would do that with the collie sticks you know the screaming sticks we would do uh, intercept him don't wait for his strike hit him you know you know it was all all based you know the camp really did have an effect on what we did regularly in class brent uh, do you remember dennis blue at the smoke yeah. camps no. yeah i remember him being he was people's uki he got beat on quite a bit yeah you know That's he, what he be, got it from yeah <laughs> so now <laughs> other people are paying for that so yeah uh, <laughs> i'm sure jeremy has had to pay for some of that i've had some yeah i've had some stories uh, but Dennis was a very good sport. He, he took it beatings after beatings from whoever people would just reach out there. And it looked like everybody else would step backward and leave Dennis standing there. So he was like the next guy to go, you know? So yeah. that was a regular thing as well. When somebody needed an Uki, a, you know, a demo partner to beat on for a second, it was no surprise if the people standing around you took a step backward to make it appear as you took a step forward. <laughs> like you wanted to be the guy that was going to get punched in the face next. The Three Stooges <laughs> elements, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was very much, it was a lot of fun, you know. The way you described the Rocky Mountain Camp, too, is that that is how it was when I started at Tim Tackett's. And as Bob became more pushed to the front, that's when we, we changed to more of a JKD-focused class. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I was happy that we were introduced to the other things because a lot of people that start in Jeet Kune Do that don't have any experience with anything else, they get good at recognizing being direct, but not necessarily good at recognizing how to hit with power because they don't have anything to compare it to. 
So I That's was right. happy that we had Muay Thai and Silat and Savat and, and, and Kali, you know, and just some really great people to train with. But then Bob was, you know, it was amazing to just hear from the mouth of one of the best guys, you know, and, and you experienced that. Yeah. Would you attend the garage much? I mean, I know it's in California, but I mean, like, was it like a regular pilgrimage over there or, or was it, would you mostly go to other camps and events around the rest of the US or, or on your doorstep? So the, the only times I've been to the garage were when we had the first camps out in California that like Jeremy and Louie and Dennis, they did those um, first ones out in the mountains in, in California. That was my first trip to the garage. Actually, Tackett would come, I guess, around starting around 2000, Tackett would come to my school in North Carolina. Like he would kind of schedule it, like when he was coming to visit his family that lives a few hours away from me and he would schedule a seminar with at a you know place here and we would meet up there and then that's you know like in 2000 that's when i noticed a difference like okay well now we're doing stuff it's a little bit different the brimmer stuff's coming along into that after the camps ended so in 91 ish the next time i actually got to train with tim tackett was in like 1998 or 99 i think that was the next time, and it was different. Everything was – not everything was different, but, I mean, the, just the teaching methods and the stuff we were doing was – the focal points were different then. We really had a stronger JKD focus at that point, I think. Where do you feel JKD's going? Is it getting stronger, weaker? How do you perceive things at the moment? And obviously, there's this divergence between maybe what our, when the Wednesday night group are doing versus maybe what other groups are doing. Uh, do you want to comment on that? I'll be very careful how I comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we like controversy. <laughs> so, now, see, I've noticed, you know, I've been in, in around it, and I've, I have a lot of martial arts magazines <laughs> that I use to follow it from, as, you know, following the, the media part of it. When I saw, like, just the camaraderie we had at the camps when I was younger, and then when that was gone, I don't, honestly, I don't really want to speculate on all the reasons that that camp stopped going on. But there were probably quite a few things about letting uh, egos get in the way of actually what we were learning. In that sense, I'm kind of glad that it stopped because if it's if that's going to be what you get, then your students aren't going to get what they came for. It wasn't enough anymore for everybody to be good. You know, it's like, well, you know, you need to pay me more because I'm this or that, you know, and um, that part of it. I think drove a wedge in there and it made it break up in in my personal opinion. Now I like what our group does because that's what I like to do. I like punching and kicking and I like hitting stuff. And, you know, in our group, we get to do a lot of that. If you took me, I mean, I could do, I can do, I could do the trapping sequences or I could do blended stuff like a lot of the other groups do. I don't, prefer that i don't i don't like that as far as the direction and then still calling it jkd i don't really they do a poor job sometimes of calling it what it is and i think people should know what they're getting to learn (laughs) i mean you know i mean it's like it's like i teach school and i'm like i don't i'm teaching chemistry i don't i don't teach them the incorrect chemical formula for something i mean i want to teach them what it is not tell them what it is so i don't want them to be able to come back and say later i thought you said it was this you know, and I want to give it to them what it is. 
so my students know the difference between that. And I, I think that if some branches, I guess, would that be a good word for it? Branches of, yeah, yeah of the, the Jeet Kune Do tree are in a different place. And that's fine. I just would appreciate it if they call it what it is. You know, I, I don't teach something and then say, oh, this is Jeet Kune Do, or this is, you know, if I, te- I see people doing this, and they teach things, and it's like, there's no way that you just did the most simple thing that you could do right there. There's no way. That's, that's yeah. not the most simple, direct thing you could have done. You did something from another art that you like and that you feel comfortable doing, but it's not the essence of what you're trying to get to, in my opinion. So, you know, I like all martial arts. Every martial art is good. I just believe that you should give the other martial arts credit for what they are. You shouldn't say if you got something good and it's came from Kali, then Screamer or whatever, you know, C-Lot, then call it what it is. Give them the credit. Don't say it's Jeet Kune Do. It's not. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, Putting you on the spot, how would you define JKD to you? So the easiest way for me to knock you out. Whatever I can, if I have to fight you, I don't mean they don't have to be unconscious. It may just be that you can't see me anymore because I, you know, poked you in the eye a little bit or something. Um, <laughs> but, you know, just whatever it takes, whatever. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've had these accidents have happened to me before. Um, but um, the, you know, the essence of it is, you know, what can I do to remain safe in the most efficient way possible? There are certain parameters that I try to stick to, but I don't care if I do it with my left hand or my right hand. If it's the most direct thing I could have done, then that's what it is. And to me, um, I want it to be simple and direct, just like it was written up to be kind of, you know? Yeah. And of course, I like to be able to hit people hard, but I don't, you know, I got to the point where you don't have to hit so hard anymore. It just hurts your hands. <laughs> just hurts your own hand if you hit too hard, you know? <laughs> you, yeah, you do hit really hard. You've done... A lot of smoker fights, to the best of my knowledge. For our sort of international listeners, of which we have a lot, I think we have like 59% of our listeners are in the US, who won't be familiar with the term smoker fight. Could you sort of explain (laughs) what that is and and could you make JKD work in that context? Okay, so yeah, these these fights that you have, um, you know, somebody puts together in a little event and, you know, usually it's because they want to showcase one or two people in my, my experience, but they'll put together a little thing and they, you know, and they'll have a few people that show up, you know, um, you know, you might have a couple hundred people there from the ones, you know, and some of them even might have dozens of people there just depending, but I mean, they're not sanctioned events. They're not like what you would get a license to compete for. Um, so it'd be like, you know, just an uns basically an unsanctioned bout, but sometimes they're a little rougher, you know, then, oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> then what oh, you yeah. might uh, experience, like say, if you went to a, you know, to a tournament where you didn't have to have a license and it didn't count for your record or anything, you when you and you fault people. No, it's not quite like that. You got people that are putting their cigarettes out and their beer, and you know, and saying <laughs> I'll fight him. You know, like you have that happen sometimes. Um, but um, you know, it's it's not a sanctioned event. So a lot of my fights were. And places like that, just because it was a lot being where I live. If you want to go somewhere, you don't have a license. That's how you get to compete a lot of times. And, you know, I just show up in boxing gyms a lot. That was a mistake sometimes. 
what's like the typical rule set? Is it? Oh, you'll make rules. Like what rules are you playing oh, yeah. to? So, you know, you're you're going to kick above the waist, okay? You're going to kick box, kicks above the waist, or something like that. So you'll be in a – and a lot of times those are decided when you're touching gloves. <laughs> you're touching oh, gloves with somebody. Oh. Yeah. And you don't know what – you don't know what you're going to be really doing until you touch gloves. And, you you know, and they'll even – sometimes even ask, do you want to box or kick box? Okay, <laughs> I always wanted to kick box because I couldn't punch for shit, okay? So I always wanted to kick box because I want to be able to kick them if I, you know – and then swing at them with something that looked like a punch. Um, but I always wanted to kick. So sometimes they wouldn't allow that because yeah. if both guys didn't agree to it, then, you know, what will you both agree to? You both agree to box. Okay. Boxing rules. It is, you know, and it's like above the waist contact only with a padded portion of the glove. Well, those guys didn't always stick to those rules. You get palmed, <laughs> you get thumbed, you get whatever, you know, elbows sometimes, you know, so it wasn't, yeah. it was, it would have a rule set, but they weren't, they weren't strictly followed. And the referee definitely wasn't necessarily on your side for anything. So No. <laughs> <laughs> what was your motivation for doing that? To get better. I wanted to see what it was like. To, I, I would you get used to the people you're in class with, and you spar them hundreds of times maybe, especially in Vic's class. You spar everybody all the time, every time. You know. So if any time you could take another fight, some or not a fight, or even just a sparring session that sometimes turned into a fight – to me, I wanted to get better, and I wanted to get better at punching, particularly because my kicks were pretty decent, and I could keep people off of me. So I sometimes I would just do it just for the punching practice. I wanted somebody to punch at me for real, like they wanted to hit me and want to hurt me, not be nice to me, which I'm not saying that's smart. Is that all consistent with you, Jeremy? Is that the same? Because you, you guys, Dennis, you send about six of you out to do local fights. Is that like, or is it different in yeah. California? Well, we were specifically kickboxing. They didn't have anywhere. It was like, well, let's decide whether or not. But yeah, the rules changed. Like I was when we were practicing a lot of Muay Thai and a lot of cut kicking. And I got to the, I I mean, I was so disappointed. I got there. They said no kick to the inside of the leg. Uh, That was like, that was like part of my game plan. But, you know, you learn to adapt. One thing I found that's interesting about the amateurs was that when you have only three rounds, like the the first couple of months, Mm -hmm. you actually have to do a lot more to prove that you won the fight. And uh, sometimes, like with, uh, we had a, a young man that passed away later on. He was a, one of our really good fighters named Tan. He got there to his fight, and they and he was told that the, his opponent had 20 professional fights in Thailand. And now they're bringing him back to, and you could just do that. Well, we're going to have some amateur fights here now with these guys. That, and it was Tan's first fight, and he won. Yeah, as mismatches, yeah, left, right, and center. Yeah. But our guy won still because, you know, we just had good training. But the JKD, there are aspects of it that you can use, intercepting. Obviously, you can't do the street fighting stuff. But, yeah, you can definitely put some of it to work. Brent, was that your – do you agree, your experience? Yeah, absolutely. Particularly, like Jeremy said, the intercepting part. That is, you know, attacking their attack, not relying just on, you know, your – you know, there was a lot that we did was geared toward interception. When he moves, you hit and you can hit while moving, which is perfectly fine. Um, so everything we did was, you know, designed for, you know, how to counter them with offense, not, you know, not bewilder them with our fancy defense. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a bit about your school, Brent. My school? Yeah. You You mean like where I teach Jeet Kune Do? <laughs> 
Yeah, you referenced earlier. I'm understanding you've got a small group these days, but you were talking about Tackett coming out to work with you guys back in the day and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I don't know that much. I know Aaron and people like that. You know, tell me about some of the key players as well. Okay, so currently my I have a class up at Vic Payne's right where the Great Smoky Mountain Martial Arts Camp was held. So, you know, we have an airplane hangar. We have our equipment in there, um, and we go out at, go at it in there quite often. Um and I do have some good students. And I did have a school that was in the, you know, the town of Murphy, North Carolina, where where I live. So a very small town. But I had a little, you know, a little room where I had a school. But the building caught on fire. So they they redid the building, but I never went back to it. But Tackett did come there a couple of times, I think. So anyway, so my my school, you know, my queen exists in a in an airplane hangar, and it has for years. If we have an airplane in there, we might have to roll it out a little bit so we have room to punch each other in the face, you know. I've had some really, really good students come through. You're familiar with Aaron Groves, Colin Griggs, uh, who's been to several camps, Jonathan Templeton, who's been to a few seminars, Greg Green, who came to several of the early seminars and later had a stroke. Uh, He was very a very good member of our class. And I have some really good students that are brand new, you know, young too. So there's people in there from 20 to 60, you know? So it's, it's a very small group, though. It's a very tight-knit group. We try to keep it that way. Do you teach, like, a syllabus or curriculum uh, per se? And my understanding is your uh, gradings are particularly brutal. <laughs> oh. I heard that from Aaron. Do you want to okay. sort of elaborate uh, on that? So, okay, so you've heard about um, well, the, yeah, our testing is if, – if I give a test, the harder tests are actually early early on. So it's they're actually not as bad later. Um, plus, plus you're a lot, probably a lot better at that point too. But, but the, you know, the tests are quite challenging. Uh, they involve a lot of – well, they're nothing but fighting pretty much because I've had plenty of time to observe you doing a kick on the pads or a punch on the pads or working combinations or feeding mitts, which is a big thing for me is I don't like to, if somebody can't feed a mitt to, to another student, then I'm not going to promote them. Okay. Cause <laughs> if you can't, I'm never, you're never going to be a teacher if you can't feed mitts. So that's a big thing for me is how to feed your student, future students. So I do a lot on that. And so as far as a syllabus or curriculum goes, if I pick a curriculum, I'm pretty fond of just sticking to the Chinatown JKD curriculum. I'm, of course, I know a lot of other stuff. I can deviate from that yeah. if, if I need to or want to. Or if a student asks me a question about some other art that they read about, which I, which is mm-hmm. something I used to do as a young student quizzing Vic Payne all the time. I'd ask him about every style that I could think of. I could tell you that story, but it's a good story. But, I mean, I look at it as I'm a – I mean, I'm a teacher. I don't know if martial arts made me a better teacher or teachers being a teacher made me better at teaching martial arts. I think it's the first, you know, I think it's the, the former that I was, I became a better chemistry teacher because of martial arts, if that makes sense. Just because I had, I have experienced a lot of things with a lot of different mentalities and that kind of transition into different types of students in the classroom. So I'm used to teaching off a syllabus. <laughs> um, I have a good syllabus if I want to use it verbatim. Um, 
you know, you know, Jeremy's got good stuff with the Chinatown JKD stuff, which um, they keep keep me as part of that, and I and I do like teaching that. I like I really like saying, you know, can you do X Y Z and I really do like doing that. I really am fond of a syllabus. My students don't necessarily know I have a syllabus all the time. They may not know that I'm teaching off of it, um, which is the beauty of it. You know, they may not know that I'm teaching them a certain sequence for a reason. They may just think I like seeing them sweat and puke, you know. Yeah, I just think different students require different things. I always encourage my students also to seek other instruction, which is not common practice a lot of times in a lot of other schools, other styles. I mean, we're we're really good about that, I think, with our group. You know, the Wednesday night group is always about learn from everybody you can. Um, the camps, obviously, in the in the Smoky Mountain camps, they were all about that. It was learn you're learning from all these different people. And, you know, so, you know, that's – I understand that different students require different teachers to get stuff that they need. You know, I have a couple young aspiring fighters. I don't teach them jujitsu or wrestling. I mean, just because I can do some of it doesn't, I'm not the one to teach it. I recommend that they go find somebody else to teach them that, but they definitely need to know it. And I'm going to watch them and see if I can grade them on it a little bit and see if they've improved on it. But again, a lot of places won't let go of their ego. They'll tell you, if you train somewhere else, you can't train here. I have, you know, I have a lot of different body types, old people, young people, you know, small women, small guys, big guys. You know, you have to be able to cater to that. You know, I, I know a lot of stuff that I don't get to teach a lot of it just because you don't have the student for it at that time. Anyway, that's probably a longer answer than what you're asking for. <laughs> no, 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 that's great. I, um, Aaron said specifically about your phase two test. He said they were rough to say the least. Um, he had to fight five guys. I, I believe that's probably at one time with no gloves. And he was beaten in his face with the heel of his own shoe. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> that's his memory of it anyway. Well, I wasn't getting the shoe in the face, so, but yeah, I do remember this happening. <laughs> um, uh, well, does that kind of limit your numbers, Brent, or are you just like saying, "Look, I want these. I want guys who can fight. I'm not having the kind of people that want to, you know, wear wear a t-shirt, get the tattoos, but actually really don't have the the balls for it." Well, okay, so I've mellowed out quite a bit because I've gotten older. <laughs> and fatter and more lazy and I don't have the energy to do that crap to them anymore. Um, but I don't say I only want students who will, that'll go through that step. Cause I have students who I will never, they don't, they're not coming for a rank. They're not coming to me for a piece of paper or my blessings on them to teach. They just want to be better at doing something. They like this camaraderie. They see a place where they can do physical stuff with no egos. And that's what they really like. The egos are like, you know, if, if it's an ego, it's a collective ego. It's not a one person pushing anybody else around. They, The ones who want to do that kind of testing, I would still let them do it, I guess, because <laughs> it's pretty cool for them to get to say they did that. But um, I've mailed out with it quite a bit. I think that might be because... Those, uh, they're not really rumors. I guess they're truths. (laughs) Those things did happen. Um, And those tests are tough. And I don't let anybody go past a certain point as far as getting my blessing to show somebody something unless they're willing to, you know, like I know they can throw down if they had to. A lot of my best students, they don't have, they don't have a rank. They don't want it. They just want to learn. And I want to teach them. 
where are these guys typically coming from? Are they from your university or from advertising at Vic's place? Or, you know, what, what's the typical demographic? A lot of times I'll advertise classes are going on, put a little thing out there, a little flyer, a little ad in the paper or something. But most of my students come from referral. Somebody brings them to class. They vouch for them kind of thing. So it's kind of a vetting system overall but sometimes i'll do a you know i'll do a six-week program anybody can come and sometimes one or two people might stay for a little longer after that time is over i've accumulated a few students that way and pretty much jonathan templeton came that way um he came to a class that i did or a seminar that i did in blairsville georgia uh, aaron groves and colin griggs actually kind of helped me put on and they kind of arranged all that stuff, and then he actually came to that seminar and later became a student, and he's been there you know, ever since. Most of the time, though, the people that come to a, an advertised class, one might stay out of 20 that come, just because it's hard. It's not for everyone, and it, you know you can t- you can get very like personally down when people leave. In my experience, you know when when you see someone that maybe you get on with or you think had potential and they leave, but you know most people don't have the commitment or it doesn't mean enough to them, even if they perhaps have the physical gift. And then a lot of people just literally don't have any physical aptitude whatsoever. <laughs> and I understand. I mean, I understand a lot of people don't have the physical. It just doesn't come easy for them, you know, but I have students who, who stay just even though that's maybe true, they still stay. Um, and then others have great aptitude or potential. You might see in them something they do not see. They just don't have the mentality, like you said, to stick it out and hang in there, stick to something. I've got one last question for you, Brent, which is at the camp in West Palm Beach in 2011, you did a little solo session using your kind of physics background to explain the science of power punching. In a way, I, I appreciate on radio, you won't be able to do any diagrams or anything like that. But <laughs> as a guy who hits incredibly hard, would you be able to sort of elaborate on that? For I, I think it's relevant to anyone across any martial art, right? How that works. Sure. Yeah, um, it definitely is. I mean, it's all physics. So the parts that or I guess I could explain a little bit would be a collision between your fist or your hand or your elbow or your headbutt or your kick. It's a collision when you're hitting somebody. It's, I mean, you're colliding with another mass. So you have two masses colliding. And in that time period, there's an interaction between those two objects where forces are exchanged. Energy is exchanged from, you know, between one person and another, you know, what we try to do is, put everything we can into that punch or kick or whatever we think we can throw at the time as much force as we can and do that over the shortest time interval possible. So it's kind of like a impulse, impulse momentum theorem kind of stuff. You're trans, you know, the shorter that time interval for transferring the force, then the more it's going to be. So it's real, like you said, it'd be really hard. I could explain it a lot better if I had my little fold-out board like I had it probably down there when I had a thing to ride on. <laughs> yeah, um, it makes did. a lot more sense. But, you know, it's, it is a way to show people, look, this is what you're doing at a, a level that you can't see. You know, you can't observe this exchange. You can't see the energy itself, but you can explain how that 
transfer occurs. And you can show mathematically, you know, I guess if you wanted to, you know, how that works. You know, and you can have, show how a small person moving fast can have just as much or more momentum than a big person moving slow. I mean, so that way you can help a small person understand if I can get my hands able to withstand that punch, the the mo- the, in, the collision, then I can hit really hard. You also talked about the sort of the weight shift and the time yeah. on the target as well, like the whipping element. You were mm-hmm. talking about the engagement of the lats on on the retraction. Right. Another thing that's hard to explain on the on the radio. Yeah, it's um, all right. I'm fucking with you, uh, aren't I? But, <laughs> you, a little, <laughs> but it's okay. Um, because if they're seeing it, they still don't get it either. So, um, <laughs> but that whole thing, of, so uh, isn't it true? I mean, think about it. Yeah. You show them, they see you do it and they say, you make it look so easy. And I always tell them, you know, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's hard to do it. It's, it takes a lot of good repetition to be able to do it. That's it's, it is. I mean, it's, it doesn't mean it's easy. You know, it looks simple. It looks like we're not trying hard sometimes. And, and then some of us will do something and it's like, dang, but you barely tried. Um, so the part about the snapping part, uh, you know, it's came from that idea of, of whipping the towel. You actually snap it backward while it's still moving forward, like right at the right time. And that's when you get that crack out of that. So you actually are tugging backward on that towel when you're doing flicking the towel thing. You, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I'll, when I was at school, a lad called Anton whipped me twice with a with a towel after swimming. So we had a fight. <laughs> a few punches were thrown. Yeah. And he, he beat oh, me yeah. up. But in maths <laughs> class afterwards, like, you're a tough guy. You're tougher than these guys and these guys. Just I stood up to him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's I try to explain that principle a little bit. You know, and a lot of people are like, well, you can make it work, but I can't make it work. And I said, well, then you're already beaten. You know, if you're trying to get that and you're already saying you can't do it, I mean, I can't really help you. If you want to put the time into doing that like I did, then maybe you'll be better at it than I am. In my opinion, if you're smaller, I'm a big guy. I'm big. So some of the things that I do with that kind of quick stuff is it shouldn't be. It's more impossible, of uh, not impossible, but more of a stretch to say, see somebody like me be able to do it than it would be for somebody smaller to do it, in my opinion, because you have less to overcome. If you overcommit, it's not as big a deal. If I overcommit, it's a big deal. I guess you know there's a certain part of it. You just have to understand – your brain has to understand what you're trying to do physics-wise, what you're trying to do with your body at and then it, you have to repeatedly practice that as correctly as you can. And then, of course, you know, I've done it. I don't know how many times I've practiced, you know. I mean, I couldn't count them. You know, if I'd have written them down, it would be, you know, I might have had a, I might could have hit a million. You know, I don't know. The things that, I've, that I'm good at, I practiced a lot. It, it wasn't this all natural stuff, you know. It's interesting that you're an educator and ha- quite how many educators we've had sort of in the group, you know, like how many people have been yeah. drawn towards teaching, whether that's from martial arts, whether that's they're a natural teacher or something like that. I think you said it was the martial arts made you a better teacher in this realm. So, But, yeah, anyway. that's I think that's true. It makes me a better classroom teacher when I'm teaching in, you know, whether it's college or whether it's high school, whatever I'm teaching, um, I think the teachers of martial arts that I've been around um, have helped me become a better teacher. Yeah. Jeremy, was there anything you wanted to add? Yeah, yeah I just want to say, I, 
I believe that because of sort of the toughness of uh, Brent and his, you know, kind of the way he trains his guys, there's a, I think all of his guys are kind of recognized or most of the ones, you know, that stand out as being tough guys. And that, that kind of harkens back to the old school mentality, which I miss for a while there. What I, I had a requirement that if you wanted to be an apprentice instructor under me or an instructor's apprentice, as we're calling it now, you had to have at least one amateur fight. And I, I kind of got some resistance, you know, and I eventually went with kind of what people were voting in our group. And I, and I actually understand why. And the, the argument was you don't have to be a good fighter to be a good teacher. And that, that's actually true. You can have people that know how to train fighters. But there is something about the way we used to do things where, you know, it's like, hey, you don't want to walk into that guy's school and pick a fight with him, you know. <laughs> You know, and I and I think now that as I'm getting older and I just keep counting more and more injuries, I understand sort of, you know, I have, you know, students over 50 some years old that can't do all the physical requirements I used to make my class do. I understand sort of being a little bit more flexible, but I do appreciate having some guys like Brent, uh, you know, that are around that that could put their shins through three baseball bats, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and it's it's not about paper. It's not about certificates. It's, you know, I, I tell my students, if you're not going to be an instructor, I will certify you. So you know where you've, where you've gone, how many times, you know, how much, how many classes you've had with me, what material I've covered. But other than that, why do you care? If you're an apprentice instructor, if you're a full instructor, if you're not going to teach, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, if you're here to learn how to fight. And so that's something I think that you can see clearly from Brent, and I and I really appreciate that. Yeah, I think somewhere along the line we've got too too focused towards instructorships rather than yes. student qualifications, and not enough people have passed through the student yeah. qualifications before getting those early stage instructorships. Mm-hmm. And of course, it adds it adds a lot of credibility. You know, when I first went to that group, uh, joined you guys back in I think it was 2009 I was just impressed by some really big guys who hit really hard who are clearly talented and studied a whole range of things that maybe you know I hadn't seen and yeah it, 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 you need that for credibility anyway um, <laughs> I've been accused of being slightly negative on on uh, the Wednesday night group on a recent podcast which was cer- certainly isn't intentional you know I, I think everyone's well aware that I love this group and I just, you know, I have to ask your difficult question is, is the way it is. Brent, as I say, we, we've been doing more stuff and I'm not going to go into that detail with the Wednesday night group, but I think it's got a whole bunch of us back in touch and, and hopefully we're, you know, moving in a, a good direction, albeit slowly, but it's, a, you know, it's about making small steps in the right direction. I think, you know, hopefully we'll get to see each other soon. Um, how can people get hold of you, Brent? It's been great catching up with you. Um, well, yeah, it's been great getting catch up with you guys too. The easiest way to get in touch with me is email me. Two email accounts that I usually check regularly. Sifu Brent Lance at yahoo.com or Sifu Brent Lance at gmail.com. I'm usually pretty good at responding to emails. That's probably the easiest way or hook up with me on Facebook. Jeremy, do you want to advertise anything or share anything? working on a documentary uh, about the Wednesday night group. And I haven't done a lot of personal in, you know, in-person filming because of uh, this pandemic, but it's going to be something that should be really fun and educational. And like I said before, uh, we are working on getting more of our group involved in some instructional video 
uh, Dennis and I, uh, Dennis Blue and I are going to start working on things locally. And then as we get clearance, uh, start working with uh, more guys like you and Brent and bringing them into the mix. Cool. Thanks, guys. Okay, uh, Primal Radio, it's been a pleasure. Yes, peace out. You have been listening to Primal Radio in association with Primal Gym and Primal Promotions. Primal Radio is available on all good podcast venues. To help us grow, please subscribe, like it, share it, and leave us a great review.